0: Hi there. This is Pastor Tim. I'm the minister at Eastside Church. We are a United Methodist congregation in East Atlanta Village. We seek to be creative, historic, and inclusive. And we are thrilled that you found our podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church community, you can visit us at www.eastsideatl.org. Well, again, good morning, friends, and thank you so much for your patience. We have had. A slight bit of technical difficulties with our camera stream this morning, but Troy has been working diligently trying to get everything back on track. So hopefully you've been able to move over from the old link to the new link to be able to experience the rest of our worship service together here at Eastside. And if you were not with us at the outset this morning, just a quick reminder, if you've not had a chance to, please fill in the check-in form that you can find embedded in the comments section of the live stream. That just helps our staff and our church leadership to, to do the best job that we can to steward well the congregation in this strange season of being physically distant from one another and using technology in ways that we have not had to do in the past to communicate and to worship together. So please fill out that form so we know that you're here. And if you are a guest with us, it may be helpful for you to know that this morning... We arrive at the the second to last of a teaching series that we've actually been in now since August. And we've been exploring this theme of aspire. And we've been asking this question, if we take seriously this conviction that human beings are created in the image of the maker, of the creator, if we share in this divine family a relationship with God, who is it that God desires, hopes, and aspires that we as human beings might become? And we've been walking through these, these characteristics that see, we see revealed to us in the life of God through our own tradition, through our scriptures, through our life together, and have been asking how those might be applied to the way that we choose to be humans and to grow as humans in the world. And This morning, we come to the theme of stewardship, and if you've been walking with us since the beginning, you know that we we, we spoke to stewardship almost at the outset of the series, but this morning, we're going to be coming at it from a different perspective, with a bit of a different lens, and, and through the lens of a different text of scripture, and I was delighted to find out that the text of scripture that I had actually decided to preach from also mirrored and synced up with the the lectionary reading for today. So, by the Holy Spirit's, I suppose, influence, those have come together in a really neat way. And and I also say let's say that this is an intense reading, and there are parts of it that are a little bit um, off-putting or upsetting, as. As we work through these, these ancient words of Jesus remembered in the Gospel of Matthew, but remember that these words were written in a different culture, in a different time, thousands of years ago, and there's a lot that would have been heard differently then than we hear now in our context. So friends, with that, I invite you to embrace a posture of sacredness and receptivity and to listen for the word of God from Matthew chapter 25. We'll begin reading in verse 14. Verse 14. Jesus tells a parable, for it is is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one talent, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. The one who had received the five talents, and talent is is a word for an, an ancient form of currency... The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them, and he made five more. In the same way, the one who had two talents made two more talents, but the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came returned and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, and he brought the five more, saying, Master, you handed five to me. Look, I have made five more. And the master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy servant. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master." The one with two talents also came forward saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. Look, I've made two more. The master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy servant. You have been trusted in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid. I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master replied, you wicked and lazy slave, you knew, did you? that I reap where I do not sow and gather where I did not scatter, then you ought to have invested my money with bankers and on my return, I would have at least received interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the ones with the 10 talents for to those who have, more will be given and they will have an abundance, but from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus transitions from the parable to an exposition, beginning in verse 1. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. And the king will say to those at his right hand, come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry... And you gave me food. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. And you welcomed me. I was naked. And you gave me clothing. I was sick. And you took care of me. I was in prison. And you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or gave you food or thirsty or gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you as a stranger and welcomed you in or naked and gave you clothing? When was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, you did it to one of the least Just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Friends, the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Holy and gracious God, God who somehow perfectly and paradoxically balances eternal and unquenchable love with eternal and unquenchable justice. Meet us in this time and pierce our hearts, challenge us and fill us, comfort us and set us at dis-ease at the same time so that we might go forth as a people who are seeking to be faithful to this majestic calling you have given to each of us. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So Matthew 25, it begins with a story about a master and three slaves who are given money to do with as they see fit while the master is gone. And then somehow by the end of chapter 25, We have a king speaking to his subjects about how they had fed him and clothed him and healed him when they did so to the least in the kingdom. It's an interesting juxtaposition of images, and I want us to hold it right there and now move to the Lloyd household back in August. And... Us boys had just returned from a bike ride and we were on the sidewalk in front of the porch of our home and we were all at the same time kind of doing the same thing, which was pulling down our kickstands and setting our bikes on the sidewalk, letting them get comfortable so that we could then go inside and get a nice tall glass of ice water because it was a million degrees in August. And... An interesting thing happened. My wife came out and she said, y'all aren't gonna leave your bikes there, are you? And we kind of looked at each other and thought about it for a minute. And she said, "If, if the rain comes through like it's supposed to, won't that make the bikes rust? See, the part of the story that I haven't mentioned is that the week leading up to this moment, I had gotten the bikes out of our shed, bikes the adult bikes at least, that had been living in the shed for a very long time, and did a lot of work cleaning them up, getting them working again, and now we were finally able as a family to go out on these collective rides. So this was all very new. And what Elizabeth observed, my wife, in this moment, was an opportunity, a brilliant opportunity, to be who she is, and to enable us, dad and sons to be who we could become. And she saw this biking as a new part of our lives, and as such, she wanted to help us instill in this moment a behavior, a habit, a way of being, a way of stewarding this new reality that would bring about many more fruitful years to come. So she said, let's just get in the habit from the beginning of moving the bikes up onto the porch so that when the Georgia afternoon rains come through, they won't completely soak the bicycles and cause rust over time. So the boys begrudgingly dragged their bikes up the steps and found a good spot for them on the porch and then went inside and I did the same. And at the the time, the boys weren't particularly happy about it, and it probably took about a week of this, of, of me reminding them, nope, pull the bikes all the way up onto the porch like Mom said. And the amazing thing is now, that it's November, and really for months now, when we get back from those bike rides, I don't say a word to them about where they should put their bikes, what they should do with them, and whether or not it's appropriate for them to leave them in the sidewalks right in front of the walkway, up the stairs to the front door. No. We just immediately, without even thinking about it, haul our bikes up those steps, find a place for them under the porch, and then do whatever we need to do. You see, Elizabeth, my wife, she has a way of, of, of seeing things and, and thinking about life and rhythms in the world that is a little closer to the ground than me. I tend to fly about 30,000 feet above, above ground and she tends to be somewhere in the 10 to 20 foot range where she can see things like, let's start a really good habit here with the bikes and get them off the sidewalk under the porch so that they don't rust. These small habits of stewardship, she's good at seeing them and helping us to bring about long-lasting, habitual change. As I was thinking about stewardship and how Elizabeth is really good about seeing these daily ways that we can sort of embrace good stewardship, whether it be of our individual lives or the things within our um, purview. I was thinking about the phrase, take good care. Take good care. Some of you might use this as how you end a phone call or an email with someone or conclude a message or a written letter, take good care, so and so. And I like this phrase because I think it's a different angle and way of thinking about kind of a, what could be arguably a kind of a stodgy church word, stewardship, stewardship. It just sounds clunky. But take good care. It has a different feel to it. It has a different sense about it. And I think it's equally as impactful when we think about what we're talking about this morning when we're talking about stewardship, we're really talking about taking good care. We are called by Christ, friends, to take good care in our lives, to steward well whatever is within our power to influence for the sake of God's good. We are called to steward, to take good care with whatever is within the power of us to influence for the sake of God's good. intentions for the world. In Jesus' parable this morning, it kind of highlights money and it utilizes money as as kind of a a functional piece of the story. But I really, I want to emphasize the fact that Jesus' point in the story is really not about money at all. He's using money as a way to tell this story. But when Jesus speaks to stewardship across his ministry, he really is speaking much more to this idea of taking good care. This idea of a holistic understanding of acknowledging everything that we have within our lives over which we have the power to to influence, to craft, to shape. To take from whatever place it is to a better place, to the next right thing. For the follower of Christ, as you study the teachings of Jesus, whether he's talking about flowers and lilies out in the field that are here today and tomorrow are thrown into the fire, he speaks of our need for faith and trust in God, to a text like this morning where this one servant does nothing with that which has been given to him, and when the master returns, the master is angry. Jesus' over, overarching theme is that stewardship is this reality of anything and everything in our lives that we have, have influence over, over which we have some level of managerial authority God cares about. God cares how we manage our lives and those things under our, our vision, our sight, our oversight, Which means that, that as, as followers of the Christ, we have to steward not just our checkbook and you know, many of you probably don't even know how to balance a checkbook anymore, because you don't have to. but we have to steward everything from our marriages. They don't just take care of themselves, friends. just word to the wise. We have to steward our life partners. We have to steward relationships between family members or our friends. Again, they don't just manage themselves and they don't just continue on fine without our attention. We have to steward our health as individuals and even that has multiple levels of reality to it from our physical bodies to our mental health and our emotional health, our spiritual health, all of these are within our managerial responsibilities. We're, we're given management responsibility over our own lives, over our own bodies, over our own well-being. And to those of us with children, we have a season where their well-being, we're called to take good care of them until they're in a place where they can be entrusted to care for themselves. Maybe you're a renter. There's there's most likely stuff in your lease that says if there's an active water leak, you need to contact a plumber or the landlord ASAP. There's probably stuff in your lease that says if there's a fire hazard that you identify, please let the landlord, know, or call the fire department if something is burning, or if you own a home or a piece of property, even more so, you, you, have, you have not only authority, but you have responsibility to oversee that piece of property. If, if, if something's broken, if a floorboard's rotten, if the roof is leaking... Or, God forbid, if there's an active gas leak in your house and the people in it are in danger of carbon monoxide poisoning. You have managerial stewarding responsibility to step in and do something about that, to bring safety to those who are within that house. And let's not even begin to talk about our refrigerators, right? (laughs) Because... In a world where food shortage and actual literal hungry children, it's still a massive problem and a growing problem in our own country in the midst of the pandemic, even our food supply has to be seen through the lens of Christian stewardship. We can't divorce even our refrigerators from the conversation because I think a case could be made that it can be a spiritual practice to tend to your refrigerator. And here's what I mean by that. I don't mean by tending to a refrigerator that you go in and and eat all the things that you really want to eat in that moment. That would be how my children tend to the refrigerator. What I'm speaking to is coming at your pantry or your refrigerator with an eye to loving your neighbor, so maybe you have things that are about to expire, and... Your church community, for instance Eastside, has just had another baby boom in the midst of a pandemic and maybe you could take some of those almost expiring ingredients but not yet expired and make a meal for somebody and take it over to them to serve them in a time of need. But that takes stewardship and management and intention and thought. It takes sometimes flying only five or 10 feet above ground level to actually see what's happening in the day to day. It's hard to catch some of that if you're always flying at 30,000 feet, because in the world in which we live today, friends, it's, it's not okay for us to be letting food spoil or throwing food away on our clock. It's not, it's not okay to throw compostable realities into regular landfill trash when Composting's not that hard. It's not okay to throw things that we know are recyclable in landfill trash when we know that we can bag things up and take them over to the DeKalb Farmer's Market if we don't have recycling pickup in our community. Some of you may be fans of the, the podcaster Science Mike. He was formerly a part of the Liturgist podcast, and bef- before that he had his own, his own podcast called Ask Science Mike, and now he has a new podcast called The Cozy Robot Show. Yeah. But Mike is a very, very smart person. I'll just say that. It's just, it's just true. And somebody recently asked him a question about whether or not deleting old emails from their, from their various email accounts if done on a mass wide scale across the entire globe could have an impact on global warming. And the way the person's logic went was there'd be less email taking up data space on the servers, so we would need fewer servers being powered by electricity, which means that there would be less power usage eventually leading to less global warming. And I don't really exactly even remember how how Science Mike answered that particular part of the question, but in the middle of the answer of his question, what what he did say and what stuck with me, especially this morning in talking about stewardship, is that what he did say is that one of the things that we can do to make an impact on the environment on a daily personal level is by using products longer. He said, you know, the whole new every two cell phone thing, it's actually not great for the environment. If your cell phone still works, and it does what it needs to do, it's actually better for you to use it longer. And the same is true of computers and other electronic devices. If you can kind of buy the right thing at the beginning and use it longer, it's better off and more sustainable for our world. And at the same time, this means that producers need to to commit to producing better products, things that don't break within the first year of use, things which it's actually cheaper much of the time just to replace the thing that broke with a brand new one than it is to fix the broken one. That whole paradigm is hugely problematic when we're talking about Christian stewardship because, friends, we live on a planet that's limited in its resources. And if we're just burning through stuff like it's, like it's always gonna be there, like there's always gonna be more, we're going to wind up sorely disappointed as a human race down the line. When we use the stuff of this world to make things, to make human life better, we need to to do so well. We need to steward our work, not do it half-heartedly or whatever makes the biggest bang for our buck the quickest. And we, as consumers, we need to use our stuff longer, drive our cars longer, drive our cars less but longer. If you drive them less, maybe they'll last longer. But Christian stewardship, a lot of the time, it it often gets boiled down within Christian circles and churches just to conversations around money or finances or the church budget. But the reality is, especially in the scripture in which we read this morning, the money itself, it, it just represents a tool that allows a society to barter and to trade goods and services. It's a currency that allows their society to function. And the bigger issue isn't actually with the, the coins or the paper money in and of itself. We know that even more and more now with digital currency and how everything's changing. What's really at, at play here in Jesus' parable is our relationship to ourselves in terms of our own capacity to be content and our relationship to our world and our own capacity to steward well whatever realities are entrusted to us in whatever moment or season of our lives. How well are we stewarding that which we do have while we're complaining about the things that we don't have? From the food in our fridge to the clothes that we wear, and if we say it's, it's cheaper to toss the pair of clothing than it is to pay a seamstress to fix it, I think that, that reveals the problem in our, in our world and in our society. Either that piece of clothing was made on the back of labor that was horribly underpaid, or there's an issue with the very type of fabric that was used to make it to begin with. But we need to be in the business, friends, of repairing and of healing, not of just throwing things in the landfill. Maybe some of you, I was actually talking to Troy about it this week, have heard of the Eisenhower grid. It was introduced to me years ago now, but whenever I get a a chance to talk to folks, I love to share it, especially... when I'm I'm speaking of our relationship to time. Because we're all busy these days, we've all got more to do than we have time to do, and the Eisenhower grid is an attempt to help us think through all of the things that are vying for our time, to help us address what, what has been famously called the tyranny of the urgent. And the grid essentially is a, it's a square, it's a box, and there's four quadrants. In one quadrant, you have the important non-urgent. In another quadrant, you have the important urgent. And then down here below, you have the unimportant urgent. And then you have the unimportant non-urgent. So, urgent, or unimportant, Excuse me, I'm going to start over. The top is important, but not urgent, and urgent and important. And those are the two that I really want us to sit with for the rest of our time together. Because most of the time, if we make our priority, the... Non-urgent, important realities in our life well in advance. If we steward those well, it means that we're doing maintenance on our car, we're taking care of our roof before it leaks, we're addressing relational issues before they get to a breaking point, we're doing regular schedule maintenance on our lives and on those realities within our purview, it helps to keep us out of the urgent, important category, where stuff is breaking quickly and things have to be addressed. And I just wanna make a quick shout out to Troy that he did everything right this morning and the cameras still decided to give him a hard time which created an urgent and important quandary for him to address. So thank you, Troy, for that and for your faithfulness, my friend. But it's just true, timely life maintenance is always important and if it's done at the right time, it's rarely urgent. Timely life maintenance is always important, and if it's done when it should be done, it's rarely urgent. And it's just way better to take care of things before they become a problem, especially before they become an urgent problem. And I think Jesus' words this morning in this, this parable, this story, I think strike kind of right through the whole conversation this wealthy boss and three servants, and each of the servants exists in this sort of managerial role with this boss who's about to go on a long trip, and we're told that on his way out, he gives, he gives each of the three different sums of money, and then the boss leaves on what is a long trip. And it seems as though the boss wants these three managers to get creative and find, find something interesting to do with this money I'm giving you. Find some way, start a business, or invest in something, Start a produce stand. I don't know, do something. And two of the three do something and they both make a profit. They do something proactive, they do well, and to varying degrees, they turn a profit. And the profit that they glean, we're told, is equivalent to the amount that they invest, which is a part, an important point Jesus wants us to see here. And then we're told the third manager is the the outlier. He has the smallest amount of money entrusted to him, and at the same time, he has the largest amount of fear of his boss. He has the smallest amount to lose, but the greatest amount of fear. At the end of the story, the master returns, and we're told that he's thrilled with the, the first two who did something creative with the money and had a story to tell, and the master says, enter my joy. And then the third, we're told that the master's quite upset with him. And I think there's a lot of ways you could parse this, but in my reading, the manager is essentially casting the blame back on the master and he's saying, you're such a scary guy that because of that, I didn't do anything with the money you entrusted me with. And I think the manager takes offense, to, or the, the boss takes offense to this. And he says, You could have at least taken it to a bank and gotten interest. I wouldn't have been mad at you if it had been lost by the banker. And the, the point I think that Jesus is trying to get at here is that this, it's, it's not just about the coin that the man buries. It's the fact that the man just wastes time. If you think about it, he was, a, he was an employee of this, of this boss who was out of town. The boss gave the three of them a project, but the third guy, the only thing he learned to do was to dig a hole and bury his money. What did he do the rest of the time while the master was gone? It's like he looked at what he received in a, with a sense of fear and with a sense of, I didn't get as much, so I'm not going to do anything. And he didn't do anything. And he didn't have a single good story to tell. The only lesson that he learned, I guess, in the endeavor was how to dig a hole, which is a really bad storyline and would make for a really boring novel, or film. But I think what Jesus wants the crowd to ask themselves is how often is this exactly how we treat the lives that God has entrusted each and every one of us with? We either let fear drive us because we're afraid of stepping out and doing something, doing the thing to which we feel called so we just don't do anything, or we're, we're mad that we only got one coin and the other guy's got more. So we're going to hang on to that one coin as tight as we can because we're operating from an economy of scarcity and fear. Thus, we're stuck and we're doing nothing. We're not doing anything to help ourselves or the boss or any of the people around us. We're afraid of failure. We're afraid of making somebody mad. We're afraid of disappointing somebody. We're afraid that we're not going to know what to do when we get to that next thing. So we just stay put, which is exactly what this third manager does. And I think he's mad because he wastes the opportunity that the manager gave him to do something great, to do something new to do something interesting or innovative, to at least have a great story about how he lost the master's money. I think sometimes that's how God is, is looking at his, God, God's children. God's like, just do something, try something. Be creative. Don't, don't operate from a place of fear, but operate from a place of curiosity, of openness, of wonder, of, of maybe... Maybe something could come from this. Maybe I only have one coin to invest, but what creative way could that go to seed or to build or to bring about something new and beautiful on this planet and our lives for the other humans around us? Well, it's no accident that Matthew sums up and follows the parable uh, of, the, of the managers with these very direct words from Jesus. Because Jesus' point in the, in the story is not about money. His point is our life, the entirety of our life, and the question, how are you spending the life that you've been given? Or to put it, put it in the words of the, the famous poet Mary Oliver, how are you living your one wild and precious life? Did you bury your talent in a hole and you're just sitting, waiting for the master to return? Or are you doing something? Are you operating from a place of fear and scarcity, or abundance, hope, and curiosity and creativity? Because the whole point is about you, and it's about me, and it's about all the humans on this planet. This morning's sermon is about how, how are we stewarding humanity? How are we stewarding our own lives, and how are we stewarding the lives of those around us? Because life itself, Jesus says this, is way more valuable than clothing or riches or even having a million dollars in the bank because you can have a million dollars in the bank and be a completely miserable human being. You can be poor, and you can be walking and living a life of joy. And here's the thing about accumulating wealth. Accumulating wealth for its own sake isn't going to bring you joy. Building up securities and fences and walls and more insurance and more backups and more and more, it's not going to make you happy. It's just going to make you see what the next thing is that you have to put into place to make sure nothing goes wrong. What if the master comes home early? Joy comes when we are open to the world and to others and open with our own stuff and our living, generous lives. When we're open with our one wild and precious life, when we treat it as though it is singular, it is wild, it is precious, and it flies by very fast. Therefore, we have no time to waste in living it. Jesus names in the end of chapter 25 what it is that that God believes is the most important part of the way we live and steward our lives. And it's essentially really basic, yet super profound. And it's how are we loving the other human beings in our vicinity? How are we treating the other human beings who we encounter in our day-to-day existence? How do those with power in society, in any society, how are they treating those without power in that society? This text has a lot to say about power dynamics. Because it's the king who's speaking, but the king speaks on behalf of who? In the second section, he speaks on behalf of the poor. And I think if Jesus were standing behind this pulpit today, I think what he would say is spend your life the bulk of your life in the important, non-urgent realm and in the urgent and important realm because that's where I think Jesus would place the humans. Jesus would place the humans in the important, not urgent, and the important, urgent realms of existence. And if we talk about... Christian stewardship without talking about the reality that it all is meant to pour into human flourishing and to human care then we're missing it. The whole the whole telos is to help one another become the people that God dreams that we might become the whole vision of a church community is that we together can live this resurrection life and that we can call out of one another as God calling to us these visions of the other people in our community uh, of what they could be and who they could become. We get to be the hands and the feet in the presence of God for one another in, in these resurrection communities that we call church. The important quadrants for people of, people of the Christ, they have to be filled with humans. If somebody's trying to get off the streets and they don't have a vehicle but they have a job interview that they need to get to that might help them to get off the street, what is that? Is that important, not urgent? Is that not important, not urgent? What quadrant does that fall into? I, I would say that falls into... Important and urgent, so if if you have the capacity and in a way that you feel comfortable getting that person to that job interview so that they might be able to get themselves off the street, I think that falls into a collective, urgent, important opportunity. If somebody's in the streets in danger of freezing because the temperature here in Atlanta sometimes just drops really fast, the bottom falls out and people don't have a place to go, what is that? Is that important, not urgent? Urgent, unimportant? No. People out in the cold, of course, that's urgent and that's important. Our work in reframing our own financial realities and life realities so that we can support those things we care about most, not least of which being our local church community. Is that important and urgent? Or is that important, not urgent? Probably depends on your church's finances. (laughs) We would hope that it would be in the important, not urgent quadrant and that you would realize that that's part of Part of living a stewarding life as a follower of Christ is reframing your life and your existence and your capacity to generosity to be such that you can support the things that you love and that you deem important. And if that's your church community, then if you have the capacity, you should support your church community wherever it might be here's the thing, friends. Part of the power of Matthew 25 and part of the reason that even people who didn't grow up in the church know about this text is this this mystical twist Jesus offers them at the end. And he essentially tells them that if... If they want to experience the presence of the resurrected Christ on the other side of the ascension, go find the poor people in the village. Go find the hungry people who need a bite to eat. Go find the people with no health insurance. Go po- find the people who have a shot at a job that could, they need to get to an interview to get, a, to get a p- employment that could get them off the street. Go find those people, and in finding them and loving them and being with them and spending community and, and doing what you can to help them, you encounter the resurrected Christ. Matthew 25 and Jesus claim that the Christ is manifest in the most desperate and needy places in our world. It's actually meant to be read upside down in opposition to the story of Cain and Abel in the book of Genesis, where when God comes to Cain and says, hey, where's your brother Abel? What does Cain say back to God after... He's murdered his brother out of jealousy. He says, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? To which the whole Christ event, the whole answer to the whole question is of course, yes Cain, you are your brother's keeper. Each of us is responsible to steward humanity. Each of us is responsible for one another. None of us are soul-independent, detached humans who have nothing to do with the other human beings on this planet. It's absurd if you actually follow it logically. We live in the same house. We share the same dirt. And Jesus says that we are family. This is a quote. Truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. So friends, may we be a people who aspire to be good stewards, who aspire to take good care, to take good care of ourselves and this one precious wildlife that God has given us and to take good care of those humans in our vicinity and to take good care of one another in this, throughout this world. And may we do it with urgency and importance when it, when it calls for that. May we do it with with importance but non-urgency when we're seeking to support those organizations that are trying long-term to end poverty, to end homelessness, to transform, to transform racial injustice into an equitable and loving society. It doesn't all have to be urgent and important all the time. Sometimes it's reworking our own lives so that we can invest and be fully present with and give to those realities which we down deep do deem to be the most important. So friends, it's my prayer that each of you this week as we go out and live, live forth that you will engage in this conversation with wisdom and prayer And that as you do, God will reveal to you how you can best take good care. Maybe so. Amen.
1: Well, we hope that you've enjoyed
0: this week's message, and we look forward to seeing you soon. If you listen from afar and you would like to support the work that we are doing in East Atlanta and on Atlanta's East Side, you can visit our website, www.eastsideatl.org, and find our giving portal there.